Hello, welcome back. Uh, today we are talking, uh, Luke Ryan is back, um, and we are going to talk um, about the $14 million settlement that just came out. When, was it June 1st, Luke? Uh, we filed our motion for preliminary approval of the settlement on June 1st, yes. Okay, and, and so was this a, in partnership with um, Attorney General Healy's office? I, I saw a joint statement between you and her, was that true? Yeah, it's a, it's a joint motion for preliminary approval. It's obviously an adversarial system, but like most civil actions, uh, there's uh, the parties have reached what uh, they believe, both sides believe would be a fair settlement. Unlike most civil actions and class actions, you need the, the court's approval before um, it can be formally settle, settled. So that's, uh, I'm sure I, um, we'll talk about the process, but that's what that moment in this litigation was it was when we reached a settlement that we would like the court to approve okay and so here i'm reading from an article from the globe on june 1st and uh the quote from Moore healy is duke and Farrakh's crimes undermine the integrity of our justice system and impacted thousands of lives attorney general Moore healy who defended the state said in a statement from the start, we have recognized that defendants with vacated convictions should be refunded and are pleased to engage, uh, to have engaged in a collaborative effort to reach a fair and efficient resolution for all involved. Um, what do you, do you have anything to say to that? Or are you in agreement there? Yeah, I mean, obviously this is litigation as you and your uh, viewers slash listeners know has uh, had a lot of a lot of parts to it. There's been a lot of kind of hotly contested parts to it. Once the um, the case of CPCS v. AG came down and Commonwealth v. Martinez was uh, resolved, um, I think the uh, Attorney General's office did recognize that there were ten cat separate categories of fines and fees that had to be um, returned. That the Supreme Court's decision in Nelson v. Colorado made this a matter of uh, U.S. constitutional law, and I think, um, you know, dating back to 2018, uh, we're acknowledging that, that people had a right to get this money back. Um, it's been tricky because the, um, the trial court and other state entities spent this Dukin and Farrick era taking in a lot of money from poor people and doing a really bad job of accounting for it. So trying to figure out how to settle this in a way that was fair and equitable has uh, been complicated by that. So the, it's been complicated by the lack of records and therefore transparency, but they're saying that it's, they, they just didn't keep good uh, files on who paid what? Right, and so what you had was a situation and we, uh, back in 2018, uh, moving back, we filed this class action lawsuit in February of 2018 um, Nelson v. Colorado had been from uh, 2017, where they had uh, the Supreme Court had said, if you're convicted of a crime, and as a result of that conviction, you have to pay fines and fees, and the conviction gets vacated, and you're not going to be prosecuted, the state has to give you back your money. So at that stage in the litigation in February of 2018, we filed this class action. At the time, it was just on behalf of Dukin defendants because there had not been systemic relief that had been granted to Farrick defendants. Um, at the same time, there were a couple of individual defendants who filed motions for refunds, uh, Stephanie Green and uh, Jose Martinez, who had their cases consolidated. The cases went to this, uh, the Supreme Judicial Court uh, took direct appellate review of these reported questions from district court judges about um, what Nelson v. Colorado meant in their individual cases. And um, Dan Marks and Bill Fick, the other lawyers that I'm litigating, that I've been appointed class counsel with, we filed an amicus brief and we essentially said to the Supreme Judicial Court, look, I, I don't, we don't think that using these two individual cases to fashion a global remedy is necessarily a good idea because um, there have been systemic shortcomings in uh, the uh, trial courts collection practices during this whole era. There was this huge push um, starting in the literally coinciding with the um, Sonia Ferrick's first day at the Hinton Drug Lab 
where the mass legislature said to the courts, all right, if you want to keep your staffing where it's at, you need to start, uh, you can retain some of the revenue that you bring in from uh, fines and fees collections. And, but if you, if you don't bring in that money, then you're going to see your budgets dip. So they um, basically spent this, spent this whole period of time where these two chemists were engaged in this, you know, pervasive misconduct, grabbing lots and lots of cash and having um, really poor systems in place to account for it. They didn't, they, they didn't have, they weren't computerized. They weren't using like um, modern bookkeeping. They lacked the personnel, the infrastructure, the oversight. And so you had this period of time where the auditor was going into a lot of courts across the Commonwealth and repeatedly saying, look, what's happening in these places is, is troubling because we, we have reason to be concerned about how accurate the record keeping is. There were a few instances of outright fraud where you know, probation officers were saying, yeah, John Smith uh, did 12 hours of community service this month when in fact, John Smith had come in with $65 cash that the probation officer put in his pocket and uh, said community service was performed. So that was the backdrop for um, this class action. You had a, a recognized right by the attorney general's office, but the parties to this litigation have had to spend a lot of time kind of culling not only the trial court, but the parole board, the Mass State Police, the RMV for, for records to get, you know, reason, presumptive payment amounts that could be kind of the, the foundation for the settlement. And um, like the beginning of when, when the Dukin scandal broke, just trying to figure out who the people were that were impacted was a more arduous task than you would have uh, guessed it should have been. Yeah. So, so Luke, uh, uh, one question, I think, you know, people hear class action and they, they, they sort of think of like, uh, you know, these massive class actions where maybe everyone's a member, or maybe if, if you had some, you signed up for um, Comcast 10 years ago and you don't even remember, um, but who, who are the, out, what would be the outermost class definition here? Who are we talking about? Who's at least eligible for consideration? Yeah, so the class has been defined as uh, individuals who suffered adverse dispositions for 90, chapter 94C cases, so drug cases. Um, and by adverse dispositions, I mean guilty convictions as well as continuations without a finding, um, whose uh, adverse dispositions were vacated uh, as a result of misconduct on the part of Dukin and or Farrakh who could um, uh, pursue a claim for individual relief based on Nelson v. Colorado. So in that's a long-winded way of saying in this class, it consists of all Dukin and Farrick defendants. They are, uh, whether they have records of payments or not, they're in the class. And we'll talk about what the minimum every single class member will get, but- um, And what in, is the, it's been so long, I've, I've forgotten, certainly I think the listeners wouldn't have written this down, but how many, just sort of back of the envelope, how many Dukin um, victims and how many Farrakh victims are we talking about? Right, so you're you're talking about, there, sometimes the reporting on this has, um, uh, there are really three ways to classify. So there are not the number of drug charges, there are the number of dockets, and then there are the number of individuals. So in a particular docket, there might be multiple drug charges. Uh, a defendant might have had multiple drug cases. And so I think what it really comes down to is you're talking uh, over 30,000 individuals who are a part of this class. Okay, from both uh, both labs. Correct. Okay. And they're, in, uh, they are still entrenched in that it was just Farrakh and Dukin, right? Right. From purposes of this litigation, it is um, it is the the individuals who received uh, who um, who've already had their cases dismissed. So there has been obviously um, uh, Rachel Rollins before she became the U.S. Attorney of Massachusetts had started this Hinton initiative to dismiss all Suffolk County Hinton cases during the entire Dukin and Farrick era that. Uh, unfortunately, her successor did not 
pick up the banner with. So, and there are other, you know, classes of, of defendants who, you know, the people who sample Sonia Farrick uh, was entrusted with analyzing while she was at Hinton, I think, continue to have meritorious claims for having those relief, that relief, but the class has been defined as these individuals who um, had their relief granted as of May 19th, 2020. So okay. if, if, in, if, another, if more people get, you know, class, you know, to have a class action, you need a minimum of about 40 people. So there may be opportunities already. I know uh, Rachel Rollins, before she left, dismissed all the, uh, what are called the letter three cases. So there's another 120 Suffolk people who got relief in 2021. They, you know, at some point, I think would be good candidates to bring their own uh, class action. And perhaps uh, if there's, you know, a couple thousand Farragut Hinton uh, defendants, if that relief comes, they're not going to be a part of this class because the certification date is when the class kind of doors for this class action closed. Right. And you mentioned as many as um, 10 different maybe types of fees or fines, or um, I don't want to use the word forfeiture unless you tell me civil forfeiture is included. We'll get to that. But yeah. um, I think people have a hard time, especially if you've never been um, dragged into the criminal justice system. I think people have no idea what, what is meant by fines and fees. Um, so sure. could you, without maybe touching on all 10, but at least give some of the classic, uh, you know, taking a, 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 an imaginary defendant you know, arrested for simple possession, what would be the types of fines that we, or fees that we'd be talking about for this person? Yeah, I mean, we, we quoted it in the complaint, uh, uh, a speech that the late Chief Justice uh, Ralph Gantz gave, where he did exactly that. He kind of took uh, listeners through a journey as to the ways in which um, the, the system had decided to shift uh, uh, create these user fees, so to speak, and shift the, the cost to the offender and make people pay for the privilege of being prosecuted. So your, typ your typical defendant, there's a mandatory victim witness fee of $50 for a misdemeanor, $90 for a felony. If they're put on probation for six months, if it's unsupervised probation, that's $50 a month. If it's supervised, it's $65 a month. These are all drug cases. So there's a there's there was a fee imposed and, and and this isn't every case sometimes you know judges waived fees but they were permitted to assess a drug analysis fee of up to five hundred dollars uh in in every case they were um some people had conditions of probation that had gps monitoring that people had to pay uh, i think it's like six dollars a day uh for they had um had uh, court costs that were imposed. They have restitution uh, that could be any amount. Some people had to pay money to the police departments that arrested them. Um, oh court God. costs could be a couple hundred dollars. There are fines. And in cases where a fine, every drug charge carries with it as a potential penalty, uh, a fine depending on the severity of the charge. And when it's a drug charge and there's a fine imposed, well, then there's automatically a 25% sur fine on top of the fine. Oh my gosh. So that's at the trial court. And then if you're on parole, after you've served a term of incarceration, you have an $85 a month parole supervision fee. If it's a felony, then the state police come in and take your DNA and charge you $110. And then up until 2016, when the law was repealed, Everybody who had a drug conviction lost their driver's license for a period of time. And if they wanted to get behind the wheel again, legally, they had to pay a $500 driver's license reinstatement fee. Wow. So, so, so this settlement is probably not going to, I mean, all of those, this works out to about $450 a person, right? It, generally. Yeah. This is, this is, this is pretty modest. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the, there's a, there's an important principle that's being vindicated here. Um, but the reality is, is that um, a lot of people couldn't pay these fees and, and fines. And so the records indicate zero uh, payments. I mean, it's one of the, the great unfortunate things about this is that incredible resources have been and are being devoted to getting blood from stones, from 
using parole and probation officers to act as collection agents to, to basically try to shake nickels and dimes out of the pocket of the people who can least afford to see this, this change disappear. So, um, you know, there are going to be individuals who got tagged with most, if not all of those uh, 10 categories who will get, you know, several thousand dollars back. There are going to be other people in this class. At the end of the day, we were able to um, reach an agreement that even if that the baseline minimum for every single class member, everybody's going to get $150, even if the, their records indicate no payments, judge waived payments, that $150 um, is a, a, a partly a recognition that the, the trial court's record keeping was not what you would hope. And, and, well, and, and frankly, all the state agencies record keeping is not what you would hope. So this is a equitable adjustment, so to speak, to ensure that underpayments don't occur, that it, in many cases it'll result in overpayments, but the, the hope here is that nobody will get less than they would have had they um, filed an individual motion. And the settlement offers opportunity for people to contest if they feel like they didn't get the payments that they were entitled to. But, you know, the, the, as your math indicates, this is not a case that on an individual basis, anybody is going to get rich. And, and honestly, one of the heartbreaking things about the case is I have spoken to hundreds, if not thousands of people who have called up, probably in the hundreds. Um, and you know, I've had to tell them, look, I understand that on the list of harms that you have suffered as a result of this egregious government misconduct, the fines and fees are probably very low. People lost liberty, they lost jobs, they lost custody of kids, they were deported. And yeah, and on top of that, they got dinged with these fines and fees that were, in many cases, impediments to reentry. And, um, but that's, that's what this litigation is about. It's not to compensate people for the, the major harms uh, of lost liberty and uh, you know emotional distress and things like that. That's hard to quantify, right? You can't really put, I mean, this is like a dollars and cents on fines and, and whatnot that you can actually put real uh, numbers to. It's, it's harder when, when you're coming to, you know, I can't see my kids, I got divorced, you know, yeah. something, I got beat up in jail, assaulted, you know, like, crazy stuff and who knows what could happen to these people um, yeah okay oh, well, one thing we know i mean you know that i think that there's data that especially recently because of the pandemic people have looked at more carefully that the average american doesn't have a big cash cushion the, the average american is like two paychecks away from financial ruin right right if you right. get an unexpected medical bill or a car repair uh, or something and, and you're not getting, and you don't get your paycheck that you expect, you're in trouble. And the, the easiest thing I, the, the, the most certain thing I can say in this case is that once you're arrested on a drug charge, you're probably not getting a paycheck for months, right? At a best case, months, maybe years. Yeah. Maybe you're like my client, you're going to be held in prison uh, awaiting trial because you can't make bail. And, and one reason that you probably couldn't make bail is because whatever little money you had got sucked up into that. Uh, those whatever 10 categories that Luke, you um, uh, very ably rattled off. And so what we're talking about is that this system, yes, it didn't take a lot of money from maybe a lot of people, but it took the last bit of money from a lot of people. And I think that the last dollar is the worst dollar, right? If someone took a dollar from me right now, I might, you know, I might say whatever, um, but come, ask me again when you've taken all my other money and now you take my last dollars, do you feel the same way as the first dollar? No, I'd be pretty, pretty upset. So I think it's, um, it's not, it is not the magnitude of the money. It's the, the fact that it's the significance of that particular funds, those funds happening to be the last available funds for many people. Really well said. I completely agree. I mean, there are documented instances of, of people who you know, if you don't pay your probation supervision fee, like it gets marked up for a violation of probation, you can go to jail for that. So <laughs> there are people who have reported like stealing, uh, shoplifting, getting, you know, right. to pay their probation supervision fee. That's what this is. Literally breaking the law just yeah. to pay stupid fines. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, to his credit, Governor Baker's in January said, you know, maybe we should stop uh, with these probation and parole supervision fees. Um, on top of everything else, like the the amount of energy and the time that is devoted to to get it to trying to get this money is it's not cost effective. It's it's purely punitive, and, right. and, and it acts as as I said, I mean, these are barriers that we're erecting to people who are just trying to get their back on their feet. And as you you indicated, like they, they don't have the cushion for, you know, if the average American can't afford an unexpected car payment, then somebody who has been deemed indigent by the court isn't going to be able to pay $65 a month in probation supervision fees. Okay. Now, sorry, could I just one yeah, question? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, we we are going to cover in a in a future episode in a little more depth the the civil forfeiture. Um, we originally we were going to call it the system, but I think now we're just going to call it the racket. But uh, is civil because civil forfeiture has always been sort of um, you know in the fringes of this conversation because it's similar but different. Uh, and and uh, maybe you can explain briefly for people who haven't caught it in a previous episode what civil forfeiture is and whether this was part of the class action. And if it's not part of the class action, what significance that has for the defendants? Sure, really good question. So civil forfeiture is, it, it kind of dates back to biblical times. And it's this idea that, that property involved in crime is it, its own kind of evil. And so um, what it would often happen and still happens is you have a, a situation where somebody is arrested on drug charges and they have in one pocket two racks of suspected crack cocaine and in the other they've got forty dollars and our system uh presumes that a nexus between the two that the cash in the person's pocket is somehow connected to the contraband and civil forfeiture in massachusetts is puts a burden of proof on the, the individual to prove that the, those two things aren't connected. And if they can't prove it, then the um, law enforcement can seize that $40, um, which it gets to keep. Uh, unlike a lot of other places, Massachusetts forfeiture law, um, if, if the state takes this money, doesn't go into a general fund, 20 of those dollars go to the district attorney's office and the other 20 goes to the, the police department. And the municipality in which that police department operates cannot, by statute um, and case law, uh, account for all the money that they take in in allocating that department's budget. So it's truly pennies from heaven in Massachusetts to law enforcement agencies. And so you have places like the Institute for Justice that puts out this annual report called Policing for Profit and gives grades to every um, state in the country. And every single time they do this, Massachusetts gets a straight F. We have the worst forfeiture laws in the country. It's in it. Frankly, it's not even close. We're um, number one. Yeah, we're number one. <laughs> so when we filed the, um, the class action originally in federal court in 2018, in February of 2018, um, we uh, brought claims related to forfeiture, as well as the fines and fees and restitutions that I talked about. And as part of this settlement, what we uh, agreed to do is to file a separate state class action um, re uh, limited to the 10 classes of fines and fees that I described that the Attorney General's office, to its credit, has agreed they have to pay back. So that's the one that's getting settled. And as part of the settlement agreement, as soon as the ju a judge gives final approval to the settlement, then we will go into federal court and um, litigate the, the forfeiture uh, part of this class action. Now, it's important, you know, it was important for us, it's no secret to be in federal court because in Massachusetts, the SJC in that case of Commonwealth versus Martinez um, had an individual motion where somebody was saying, and, you know, when the police came in and they arrested me, they took you know, $1,400 that was in my apartment. And um, as part of my plea agreement, I give I agreed to give that up. But now that my case has been vacated, I want that $1,400 back, or I want a, another chance to fight about whether they get to keep the $1,400. And 
the SJC said that forfeitures are are separate and 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 have they're they're distinct from the criminal case. They're a civil action um, or a civil proceeding that is not dependent on the un underlying conviction staying in place. Um, that that's kind of weird to be honest because. Dude. There's no set in the district court where most of these forfeitures happen. It's just a part of the plea. There's no like separate docket, right. like a abuse prevention order has, you know, as often a, the basis of an assault and battery charge, but there's a separate civil case where the victim or the alleged victim is, you know, the plaintiff and the defendant in the criminal case is the defendant in the civil thing. And those are, those are different cases. When it comes to forfeiture, there's no separate case. And so our position has been, look, if you vacate the conviction, the, 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 the whole plea goes out, you can't say, oh, but this part is still um, untouched by this uh, development. That so just to, just to clarify, because I think you explained it well, but I, I, again, I, I want people to sort of visualize this. So if you were, let's say, a, a busboy or a, 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 a wait staff, let's say at a nightclub that closes late, and you, at the end of the night, you split your tips and you have, you know, some of these people make pretty good money, right? Or yeah. maybe you have all your tips for the week. Uh, and maybe the next thing you're going to do first thing in the morning is go to the bank and deposit it. Uh, if you have a bank account, maybe you don't have a bank account. Yeah. So you could have like a thousand, two thousand $2,000 of cash kind of rolled up. Yep. And if, and if, if, if you get pulled over and, you know, it used to be, oh, I smell, I smell marijuana, which is non-falsifiable, yeah. right? Um, and, and then they say, they search your pockets, they flip them over and they're like, what's this? I see some re resin on your, in your pocket or residue or something. And you get arrested, that cash is taken from you, right? You don't see that cash again. And then if you, at some point you've been held for maybe months in, in, in a county lockup and someone comes to you and says, yeah, if you plead guilty, you can walk home. But there's a catch. You don't see that money again. So you right. would actually have to decide to extend your incarceration, roll the dice and face a conviction, which could be if you were in a school zone, which I looked at a map of Boston and everybody's in a school zone. Yep. Um, you could spend two years in prison just to get that $2,000 back. I don't know anyone that would do that. Yeah, I really don't. So the rational decision is to say bye-bye to that money. And the government never is actually taken to task. It's very rare. I had one civil forfeiture case against the feds where they um, tried to claim $300,000 when they really should only be claiming $100,000. Uh, and they, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't wanna cast aspersions, but they weren't that intent on litigating it. And they do litigate some of these cases, but they don't litigate a lot of them. And I don't think they are eager to litigate them, but they don't have to because the system is so one-sided. So, and that upper limit of the money is much bigger than the fees and costs, potentially. It could be the $3,000 in a shoebox. You know, there's that story of the guys who were going to buy a car in like, you know, Northern US and they drove across country with $100,000 in a shoebox and, and got pulled over for, for, um, for, uh, for nothing. So it's, yeah. that is an, a significant aspect of this, but it sounds like the courts are sort of setting that off to the side and that's going to be another round for you and others to litigate. That, that's correct. This is um, a preview of coming attractions. Uh, but it is it's an absolute racket it is oh yeah yeah um, think about what you just described i mean like that is that's that's theft and and especially in this country like it, it drives me crazy luke when we talk about people's rights and it's like right not to wear a mask that's all people care about right not to wear a mask or right you know to do these silly things like having a gun people confuse gun with freedom and meanwhile they say nothing while the while the government is literally stealing money from people <laughs> legally, yeah, well, it, yeah, it, it's, we'll we'll get to this more. But you know, there's an irony that like a company like Purdue Pharma, which was in fact, um, I, I I can't remember if it was the company or some of the executives, but they were actually convicted of of breaking the law, um, and yet I don't remember uh, there being civil forfeiture of Purdue Pharma's uh, assets, right? So when the, when a wealthy person uh, commits a crime. There's rarely civil forfeiture, but when uh, when somebody who can't afford to fight this is you know um, arrested with money, and it doesn't have to be money by the way. If you are driving around in a neighborhood slowly and the police think that you fit the profile of a drug dealer, they could say that the car is an instrumentality of the crime, and they could they could seize the car. 
and there aren't tax cards. And I've read cases yeah. that say, you know, state of whatever against two Plymouth, you know, whatevers. So um, that uh, I think it's not just the cash. It could be anything. I mean, it could be a house uh, uh, for that matter. Yeah, like a lot of things, you know, there's a very entertaining uh, John Oliver episode about civil forfeiture that I would recommend to anybody go on YouTube and track down and he kind of nails it and it is uh, these are cases um, if the money is of a, enough significance like if it's more than just the $40 in the, the, the pocket along with the, the two rocks if it's like my experience it, it tends to be you know over $5,000 then they will bring a separate civil action in superior court that's like commonwealth versus six hundred and $6,074 in cash, or uh, they'll name the automobile or the house or the cell phone. Um, and, but, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that the, the prosecutors uh, of the criminal case will, they're, they're, they're mindful that there's this civil action and, and a defendant's willingness to part with money or property can often um, lead to a better offer uh, on a on a resolution of a case, as you described, where you know, and and again, it's this is like a regressive tax. Like this is often this money. I mean, Justice Thomas of all people has a pretty you know thoughtful opinion about how um, racial minorities, immigrants are less trust can be less trusting of banks. You know, with a history of redlining and all these other things, there's good reasons to not right. trust banks and to rely more on cash, and that makes them therefore more susceptible to having uh, these these seizures of large sums that, uh, so it's, you know, years ago, we, we passed a milestone, and I think we've hit it every year where um, law enforcement is seizing slash taking more money from people than uh, our nation's robbers are. And that's, <laughs> that's the world we live in now. And, and not to belabor the point too much, but I, I believe another factor weighing against contesting even when there's a, a, a civil complaint brought for forfeiture is if you have a, a criminal trial date, let's say eight months out, and one of the things that's gonna be used against you is this pile of cash. And in order to claim the cash, you have to submit a pleading with the court where you say under oath, or at least it's gonna be used against you, that's my pile of cash. That would be uh, most criminal defense attorney's biggest nightmare, which is you're giving a set of admissions to the prosecution. And yeah. so most lawyers probably either advise against it or give um, what I would say is probably cogent and, and correct legal analysis. And then the defendant would choose that the money is not worth the the the, the headaches that it might uh, entail. That's correct. <clears throat> it's nuts. It 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 really is a, a crazy crazy um, world. And at and at the end of the day, what are they solving? Like this is what drives me crazy about this stuff, Luke. That they just kind of like they're pro they're they're charging people all these fines. They're arresting them for possessing drugs. Are they stopping any drugs from coming into the state? Are they stopping people from using drugs? Like there's no barometer here. It's just like a, an operation that goes on and on forever, destroying people's lives without any reason. It's crazy. I, I mean, the actually the opposite is often true. Sometimes in big drug investigations, you will have people, um, drug purchasers coming into cities to acquire the drugs and then leave with the drugs. And what law enforcement entities who have a profit motive have taken to doing is they don't make, they, they know the deal's going down. They don't make the seizure on the way out of town with the drugs. They make the seizure on the way into town with the cash. That's what they're more interested in, stopping right. the car with the $50,000 of cash than stopping the car on the way out with the $50,000 worth of narcotics. So it's, you know, they, it, it really, I mean, it, this leads to, um, there have been zero checks on how this money gets spent. Um, incidentally, there was um, the, the district attorney in, in Worcester County spent a portion of his forfeiture money on a, on a Zamboni for a, a hockey rink. Um, well, that's important. That's, that's important. Thank God. Yeah. Thank yeah. God. The city of Boston spent, I can't remember, six or seven hundred thousand dollars on a um, on a surveillance, uh, yeah. a, a undisclosed surveillance system that they recently had to fess up to. 
Yeah. Uh, um, I think it was a cell phone surveillance system. This sounds um, like Iran Contra all over again, using outside money to just buy, you know, crap to suppress people. Uh, it, it's this is nuts. Um, so let's let's get back to the thirty thousand though. So first of all, congratulations on the settlement. Thank you. Um, I think people don't understand when they hear about any kind of legal settlement how much work went into that, um, and that it wasn't easy and it wasn't certain. And I'm sure that you, um, you know, uh, tried every uh, uh, bit of uh, you know. Uh, 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 a heroic effort that you could come up with to try to have made that number bigger. And I'm sure there was somebody or probably a team of people on the other side who, who probably felt like they were going to get fired because the number was as big as it was. So um, that was hard fought. And, and I think uh, congratulations are in order. But now what, how do we match up that 19 million with the 30,000 people? And what system and who's going to be at the at the uh, at the steering wheel of that system to yep. try to match up correct amounts of money good question so in this lengthy period of time that the case has been pending the the four entities the trial court the parole board the state police and the rmv have come up with uh payment figures for every one of these cases and so there are presumptive payment amounts um that have been calculated, and uh, there's essentially a formula uh, that um, is a part of the settlement. Now, one of the things that happened when the case went to uh, the SJC and Commonwealth versus Martinez was this issue of surviving convictions came up. So oftentimes when somebody's charged with a drug crime, they're also charged with other crimes, be it firearms, they could be serious charges, or they can be less serious. But um, when the Dukin and Farrick uh, convictions were vacated and those charges were dismissed, in about a quarter of the cases, there remained on the person's record a surviving conviction. And the Supreme Judicial Court essentially said that in such cases, um, if somebody was on probation for a year with a drug and a gun charge and the drug charge got vacated, they were still going to have to pay that $65 a month for um, the gun charge. And so in those cases, the person doesn't get any of their money back. So what we negotiated in cases with, with a surviving conviction is a 50% reallocation. So um, that's across the board. Uh, and I think in the overwhelming majority of cases, it will benefit class members who otherwise wouldn't have gotten any or just a small fraction of um, money back. So you start with this presumptive payment amount for, and that's just for the trial court reallocation. So if you are on parole for a gun and drug charge and you got your drug charge vacated, but not your gun charge, it doesn't matter. You're getting all that $85 a month back. Same for the DNA fee and the driver's license reinstatement fee. But you start with a calculation of those 10 fines and fees for the trial court, you look to see, are there any surviving convictions? If there are, there's a 50% reallocation. And then whatever that figure is, you add $150 to. Um, unlike a lot of class action settlements um, that you know we all may be familiar with, you get the postcard in the mail that says, you know, you're a part of this class to opt in, you know, send in this, this form. And then later on they say, all right, if you wanna, um, you know, get, your piece of this settlement, you need to fill out a claim form. Um, that's not going to happen in this case. In those kinds of cases that I just described, the claim rates are kind of notoriously low. They often hover below 10%. So we have a process here where once a judge gives final approval, these checks are just going to automatically go out to class members. And um, if it if it turns out, and it probably will turn out, there's going to be a, a fair number of, you know, these cases date back to 2004. They're going to be some deceased class members. So um, the, uh, you know, the descendants of people who are deceased class members uh, can, will be able to, you know, get themselves approved as a personal representative of the state and they can claim the cash. Um, Inevitably, even with that in place, there's going to be a significant number of checks that just don't get delivered or cashed. And so instead of going back to the state, uh, the settlement agreement provides that uh, three 
nonprofit entities will get these residual funds. Um, the community legal action out in Western Mass that's legal services for poor people that has a reentry program is, is slated to get some. Uh, there's a, a, a group called the Transformational Prison Project uh, that's led by formerly incarcerated individuals that does amazing restorative justice work that's going to get some of the residual funds and then another program uh, called My Turn uh, that is also um, for and led by formerly incarcerated folks that's really about reentry and um, education and technology. They're going to uh, share in the residual funds. So it's a settlement that um, will provide for even the people, the, the checks that don't get cashed will go to places that will indirectly uh, help members of the class, even if the, the people themselves who are entitled to it, for whatever reason, it doesn't end up in their pocket. And is there, um, as somebody who dabbles in class actions, is there a mechanism by which, aside from mailing the check, that we could um, you know, provide uh, uh, an option for people to either put their name in and see if they're eligible for money or, uh, or they know a relative. I mean, I'm very worried about people who are deported. Sure. Um, I know my firm has, has uh, I think, represented uh, one or two. Um, and, and I know it goes on all the time um, that people got deported because of the drug conviction that once yeah. it gets vacated, I mean, I don't know how you, you probably, not only would you, Pro, uh, probably not uh, reapply, but you would, you know, you're back at, you're at the back of the line and now you have to explain, the, they don't ask you, have you ever been convicted of a crime that you weren't subsequently absolved of years down the road? I think they just ask you, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And you have to say yes, and then attach yeah. an explanation and no one's going to really pay attention to that. So I am worried about people who, not necessarily death, but other reasons that might not be able to know there's a check being uh, with their name on it. Is there a way that we could have people find out? Yep. So once preliminary approval is granted by the court, uh, there's a notice that will be mailed out by a settlement administrator to all class members. And there'll be a media campaign uh, around this too, to alert people that this these notices are going out. If somebody is a member of the class and they don't receive a, a notice, then they will be able to call a, um, a settlement like uh, call center. Uh, there'll be a website and they'll be able to say, hey, you know, I'm a member of this class. Here's my name. Here's my new contact information. This is where the check should go to. And so uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, lawyers like you and other organizations that help um, this population are aware of this and you know we'll be doing everything possible to make sure that uh you know it, it's a it's a group of folks who given their their limited means or I, I would suspect would be more transient than um than you know just an average group of folks so the you know significant efforts are going to be made on the notice side and the hope is that through the notice um, individuals will then be able to give updated information so that when the next mailing goes out with checks, that um, a, a, as high a percentage as possible land where, where they should. But I, I think that sounds um, excellent. Now, uh, one last question, Jamie, I'm, I'm not trying to monopolize here, but um, what about, where's the money coming from? Is this coming from the, the general uh, 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 you know, coffers of the Commonwealth? You had said that it's hard for probation uh, and you know different police organizations and even maybe the courts to figure account for what they took, um, and that makes me a little bit suspicious. So, is is there some pretense that people are going back and saying, "Oh, here's the money we took," and you know, um, here's the 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 you know the Susan B. Anthony coin <laughs> that I took from that you know 1984, or uh, is it uh, are we just pretending that? that money is, is gone um, and that this is a, a new money from the Commonwealth. Right, so I think there's gonna have to be like a legislative appropriation um, to pay for this, but I think the, we're operating under the idea that, you know, say somebody paid a $65 probation supervision fee in 2010, the state took that in, they then sent it to the, um, who were the treasurer went to into the general fund and then you know when they got their 
back in the days of when retained revenue was how the courts were funded, then that $65 would be accounted for and we'd go back or 10% of it would then go back to the court for its appropriation. So um, yeah, but in terms of the actual Susan B. Anthony coin, no, that's long gone and been circulated all over. So it's not the same dollars that are, were, were uh, but, but, but did any did any town or city uh, authorities get this money, or was this all Commonwealth, either through the state police, the courts, or probation? Yeah, these are all. Um, no, the answer is, um, you know, the only one that I would say that would give me some pause on that would be uh, restitution. Um, I know in the Martinez Green case that I referenced that went to the SJC. Um, restitution was imposed and a local police department was the recipient of like a thousand dollars that the defendant had to pay my in my own experience that's pretty rare restitution okay. is usually like you know leaving the scene of property damage where you you drive into somebody's car and then you get charged criminally and and part of your sentence is you got to pay for the repair to the car and so there's or if a, you steal. You know, a victim if drug you cases steal. tend not to have that yeah, I mean, I uh, you know somebody who steal like let's say steals you know fifty thousand dollars from um, you know so, someone's you know like an old lady's bank account or something like the restitution would be putting that money or what's left of that money back. Exactly. Um, but in a so I'm having trouble figuring out what restitution is in a drug case. But uh, yeah. so you're saying that's sort of rare. Um, it's it's rare. I mean, they agree they have to pay it back largely because that was one of the categories in Nelson v. Colorado that was part of that litigation where the court said, yeah, restitution has to be returned. And so the SJC and the decision basically said, we can't foresee many instances where this will be in, a, in these particular kinds of cases, money that has to be returned. But um, if, if, if it was had to be paid by the defendant and the conviction is vacated, it, got, it goes right back to the defendant. Crazy that they have such a hard time coming up with information about people who've been arrested. But if you like try to file for any kind of federal funding or anything like that, they're right on top of, oh, this person's convicted, blah, blah, blah. You know, like they know right yeah. then when they want to screw you over. But like if they ever have to pay out, suddenly it's a big deal to uh, get specific information. It's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's again, I, I, I harp on this, but I think it's, it's just yet another reason why this whole system of um, forcing poor people to pay for criminal prosecutions is um, it really belongs in the dustbin. When the when it's we so had diplomatic, the, Luke. Yeah, I was gonna say I, it's dog shit, but you, you, yeah. You know, you, <laughs> I mean, when when we had Ferguson and all the unrest in Ferguson, when the 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 dust settled there. The Department of Justice went out to Ferguson and said, hey, why, why did everybody get so upset about this Mike Brown killing? What was so special uh, about that? And the thing that they discovered was Ferguson, Missouri had um, was a particularly invested in just shaking down its African-American community for fines and fees in misdemeanor cases. That was like the Mike Brown was like the, the fuse, but that was like the, the, the TNT that had been kind of gathering in that community. And then they were like, wow, actually this is everywhere. Everywhere is like this. So they, as a result of that, they sent out a dear colleague letter to all the state courts and said, hey, you know what? There was these, this huge problem in this community because this is how they acted in Ferguson. And you all might want to convene some working groups to, to see how you're doing things in your jurisdiction because um, it sure seems like what Ferguson was doing was part of a national trend towards shifting these fees and financing local government through this regressive tax on the poor. And sure enough, you know, Massachusetts did some soul searching through a working group, put out a report and realized, boy, we're really finding every which way we can possibly grab money from the folks that have the misfortune of walking into our uh, into our criminal legal system. Wow. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's uh, you know, I think people who are familiar with user fees um, know that, that, that they're generally considered appropriate when the person incurring the service has to pay the user fee. 
right? right. So if, if I'm going to, um, I'm trying to think of a user fee, like they might charge, the town might charge you, you know, $25 to review your, you know, your, your architectural plan for your new deck, right? Yeah. Well, that's fine. If I want to have a new deck, you know, I'm, I guess I'm willing to pay $25. And if I don't want to pay the $25, I guess I like the deck I have. But you're turning it backwards when you're saying to somebody, well, we, we're going to prosecute you and we're going to get money at the same time from you because you're, you're incurring a user fee. That's backwards. Uh, and any economist would tell you that that's uh, um, a fool's uh, errand to, to, to re reverse the, the financial burden on, uh, on the person, you know, put it on the person who's not deciding to incur that service. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Like if you go back and you look at the history of this, um, it really, in Massachusetts, stems back to a report written by a guy named Charles Ring in 1988 in July, and it was really titled, you know, shifting user fees or something like that to the offender. And it was this like report that was submitted to the, the state legislature um, saying that, hey, it seems like, you know, with these out of control, you know, fiscal problems that all we're experiencing, we're we're overlooking a, a potential source of revenue here for funding the court system, which is the people that are using it. And as he was making this case, one of the concessions he made was that, you know, there are two models of, of probation. You can have a, um, a support system, which is all about, you know, helping people, uh, you know, reenter, getting them jobs, getting them training, getting them uh, the help they need, or there's a surveillance model where the whole goal of probation is to just violate people and and um, it's a gotcha kind of system. And when he submitted this report, he candidly admitted that the um, the support system that probation kind of had been founded on had given way to the surveillance system. But even though people weren't really getting services for from probation, we might as well charge them. And it was literally like less than three weeks after he submitted this report that the legislature just turned right around and said, yep, we're going to start um, charging things. I, there's a um, kind of a fascinating, like, you know, this was 88. This was the middle of Dukakis's run. And it, it was like he and Bush were just competing to see who could be tougher on crime, who could, you know, show the, the, the American people that they were more anti-drug. And this was just, I think, a way for you know, Massachusetts to kind of get behind the, the governor who was on the ticket for the Democrats to say, look, we, we, we hate poor people as much as your Republican opponent, if not more. And, and it, you know, it, it to, to have something like that, a report that goes out, it's 30 pages, and then all of a sudden, less than three weeks later, there's a new law, like, nobody studied it, nobody, you know, convened a group to say, hey, wonder what this will be like for the people who are suddenly on the hook for this cash. Will it help them? Will it help us? And it, none of that happened. It was just became a race to who could, how, how can we come up with more ways to grab money from people? Well, everything we've touched tough on, on crime, right? Yeah. That, that was the other thing, and to look tough. Yeah, everything we've touched on in this podcast, uh, uh, I think, represents a bipartisan failure. Oh, for uh, sure. And, oh, yeah. And they're I'm both using, they're both heavily invested. I mean, the Clintons and, and the crime bill, you know. Right. Like, and I'm using bipartisan charitably. I mean, it's been a, a while since I've studied the legislature, uh, legislature's breakdown, but we're primarily talking about people who self-identify as Democrats. Um, an occasional Republican governor thrown in um, for uh, uh, amusement. But um, this is this has been a consistent, uniform uh, and sort of relentless effort. To, to turn the screws on people, whether that was intentional or not. Um, I think that's interesting, the article by Ring that you mentioned, um, because I don't think people appreciate that probate, probation is not like, oh, if you commit another crime, you can go back in. I think people think that's what probation is, right? It's yeah. not, you can, I mean, it is that, but they, they, they stack on conditions um, which uh, on occasion I've been made aware of that sound like things that should be legal. So like, for example, for some people, you know, if you have a computer crime, your probation violation could be using a computer as that dastardly act of using, like logging in to your Yahoo account. Um, uh, for some people, it could be drinking. For some people, they have uh, curfews. 
right? For some people it's driving and it's like, well, if you can't drive in this country, how do you make money? So right. there's all kinds of, I think, this is my personal view, ludicrous um, and should be unconstitutional uh, limitations that we put in to probation as a tripwire so that they get you, right? Uh, and then, and I think it's preponderance, by preponderance of the evidence, they'd have to prove the violation, right? So they don't yeah. even have to prove you were drinking. They just have to prove that, you know, one or two people might have thought you were kind of sort of drinking and you can go right back in. So, um, and, and uh, so I think that, that the, um, that's, that, that's fascinating that that was the intent of the system. Um, and it turns out that that system was really to prop up these, a lot of these costs. Yeah, I, I mean, as bad as probation is, parole is worse. It is so much worse. You should someday get a, a, one of my old friends, Donald Perry, on to talk about uh, parole uh, and, and what uh, his experience on parole was and what he's kind of seen. But, you know, they, they will violate people for <clears throat> being present where gambling is taking place or being in the vicinity of, of somebody else with a felony, like. <clears throat> how do you, how do you oh. know? Would you have to ask everyone you meet? Like, have you committed a felony? Yeah, and it's, it's just a setup to, to violate people. Um, and, you know, in, in all the time and energy that goes into all that monitoring and surveilling is time that isn't spent on, on helping people. Um, you know, the vast majority of whom have huge trauma issues, uh, adverse childhood events that are, you know, impacting them in the present day who have been in the most, you know, traumatic environment of, of, a, of a state prison that are then, you know, going out on the street and instead of having people to help them navigate all the, the challenges of that, they're, they're really, you know, essentially doing the equivalent of just hiding in the bushes, trying to wait for the moment when they have a technical violation that's not even a crime to, to send them back. It, it's really a, um, it, it's, it's a shameful way to, to treat people who, uh, um, you know, we, we, we all have, an, a, a, you know, who end up largely where they are through, through the fault of, of systems that let them down in numerous ways by the time they become old enough to uh, enter the criminal legal system. Right. If they, I mean, if they diverted funds to, you know, diversionary programs before there was even an offense, give people opportunities for jobs and education and things along those lines, you know, they, this wouldn't happen, but it is designed to, to milk money off of poor people and give it to these people who, you know, fake overtime and bust you for like nothing. And then, I mean, dude, the, what this always like I'm I'm thinking the whole time we're talking is Kevin Burnham, Kevin Burnham, Kevin Burnham, the guy who was praised on the floor of the the United States House uh, after he retired was literally stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash and drugs out of the Springfield P PD office for years and years and years, evidence office for years, and then he killed himself, and then another. Um, and then another uh, evidence officer in Braintree did this. She killed herself after getting like Steve the Rifleman Flammy's gun and, you know, stealing a bunch of like I, this to me is going on everywhere. And yeah. it, it's just a matter of not catching it. You know, have you guys seen uh, We Own This City? Oh, the um, the the kind of the guy, but the thing from the guy by the wire, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's, it's worth it. It's uh yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a, a, a deep dive, you know, uh, wire-esque of uh, the Baltimore Police Department, but it made me think of Springfield as I was watching it, so. Okay, I'll have to check well, it the, out. The, the distinctions are not, um, I mean, there obviously are distinctions, but at the end of the day, if one person or group can figure out something, you know, the concern and the economic incentives are, are perverse you know, it's only, I think, a, a, a naive person that, that would be surprised that that thinking has spread. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what we've probably experienced here. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, Ilias, do you have any more questions or? No, um, I, I think we're gonna, I guess, stay tuned on the civil forfeiture um, prong of this. Uh, that's the one that uh, interests me. We will cover civil forfeiture. 
um, and, uh, and, and it's a, a little bit of its origins, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll take a little historical tour for those who are interested. Um, and uh, uh, probably uh, the answer is nobody's interested, but hopefully by listening to it, you will become interested. You will be. <laughs> can I can I just flag a, a, a huge moment in that that I uh, I don't think has received nearly enough attention is in the 2000 election we had a, a ballot question on that would have basically ended civil forfeiture in in Massachusetts that almost won it came very very close it had the support of three former attorney generals. Um, it had a sitting congressman, it would have basically um, taken away the profit motive that law enforcement has, it would have, when it did allow for the money to be taken, it would have been expressly earmarked for drug treatment programs. Oh, perfect. Yeah. And the, <laughs> Imagine the, the, that. the district attorneys and chiefs of police put up this epic scare tactic. Of course. And, and this new... Uh, district attorney from Middlesex was tasked with writing the for the ballot question. You know how they have the pro and and then the con. Um, and yeah. this district attorney wrote this fundamentally dishonest um, uh, description of what the 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 new law, if adopted, would provide for. And literally by just a couple percentage points, it fell short. And this triumph for uh, law enforcement. Uh, was also a triumph for this new uh, district attorney by the name of Martha Coakley. Right. Oh so, boy! Well, so, so uh, another feather in her cap. She, yeah. she's <laughs> that brings us that brings us back to uh, you know uh, what was it episode one? Uh, you know. Yes, it was. It yeah. ties back nicely. Um, for those who skipped that episode, you, that's a um, that's I think an important one to read. It's a must. Um, Martha jewel jewel vaporizing on Martha Coakley. Well, so I, I do. I guess my final question, Luke, and you can duck it if you don't want to um, wade into politics. But you know, you mentioned Rachel Rollins, uh, who I um, happen to like. We uh, we went to the same high school, although we didn't really know each other very well. Um, and I was uh, I I was a little bit saddened when 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 she said she wants to move over to the U.S. Attorney's office. Because I'm thinking, you know, you you were more valuable where you were, um, and you could do more, right, uh, where you were. You had more, I think, um, um, a, a bigger portfolio. Um, and I think Ma uh, Mara Healy, uh, who I also like, um, uh, and on balance, my personal view is I think she's she's been she's been good. I'm sure there's critics and things to be critical of, but uh, she's running for uh, governor. Is that right? And so my concern is, um, you know, are we creating more voids than we're filling? And do you get a sense of which way we're going in terms of the leadership on this issue? Are we sort of treading water? Is there signs of optimism? Um, is, is there signs that we, this, there may be a backlash and a rollback into the old way of doing things? Yeah, I mean, without getting into the specifics of those of that race, like I, I, I noticed, uh, I mean, billions of dollars were just devoted to uh, unseat the and recall the, the district attorney in San Francisco um, on a really kind of shameless campaign that was aided and abetted by national and local media organizations like the New York Times that kind of uh, perpetuated this myth that this progressive DA comes to town and these all of a sudden these murder rates go up and and that's the responsible for this soft on crime. Um, so I think we're living in an age where um, you know there have been some really kind of new a new breed of of people who see um, the role of a prosecutor as being different. And Rachel Rollins is a great example of somebody who. You know, went into office and kept a promise to say, look, here's a list of minor misdemeanors that we're not going to waste our time with. We are going to divert because it's a poor use of resources and prosecuting these cases actually increases crime. It causes the people who are prosecuted to commit more and more serious crime. So I think the, the establishment um, 
out in the world is, is very hostile to these kind of innovative ways in, of looking at uh, public safety. One thing that I think is, is kind of fascinating as we're, you know, within this experience that we're all having and with, um, you know, these mass exonerations is as we look at, you know, COVID and increasing, I mean, the reality is that in a lot of places, um, crime has increased and it's not just in, uh, you know, the jurisdictions of progressive prosecutors, but um, there are more, there have been more murders uh, of late in Philadelphia where Larry Krasner is and is a one of the first progressive uh, DAs and in other places across the country. Interestingly enough, Boston is one of the, the, the few places where the murder rate, the crime rate has, has managed to go down during a period where nationally there has been an uptick, not an uptick again, that justifies the sort of breathless um, bleed it leads coverage that it gets. But I'm convinced that it's not a coincidence that one of the things that distinguishes Boston from some of these other jurisdictions where there are progressive prosecutors is you had a shit ton of old drug convictions get vacated that put people in a position where, you know, crime became, you know, something that was almost inevitable that these old convictions, getting rid of those, I think had a significant statistical impact on the kind of crime and level of crime that we aren't seeing in the Commonwealth, because not only did this, you know, the whole narrative was you get rid of these cases and the heavens will fall and we'll see this crime right. wave. But I think the exact opposite has happened. Yes. Right. And, and, and that cannot be stated loudly or often enough. Like the scare tactics are total bullshit. We need to look at what's reality. And reality is we still jail more people than any other country, right? Is that correct still? We do. And so why is that never brought up? Like other countries, their police kill zero people. England, Germany, zero people every year don't have these crazy incarceration rates. These are the things that need to be discussed and not the constant fear mongering. The fear mongering just needs to stop. And that's led often, sadly, by the police and law enforcement. And it needs to stop. Yeah. Anyways, I'm so glad you guys have uh, are embarked on this uh, season two. I saw you had a really interesting episode the other day with uh, another great muck, muckraker and public records requester that I can't wait yeah. to listen to. And um, I think what you're doing uh, and continuing to do is is really, really important work. And, and I always appreciate the opportunity to pay you a visit. So thanks for two seasons and counting here. Thanks so much, Luke. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and as always and being um, superb. So, yeah. And again, congratulations on the, um, on, on that agreement. It's fantastic. Thanks I really for your appreciate work. that. That means a lot. All right. Have a good rest of your night. You too.